You're listening to the Young Arthroplasty Group Augment podcast channel, part of AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons, advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, research, and outreach. Welcome to the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons Young Arthroplasty Group podcast, The Augment. I'm Anna Cohen-Rosenblum, an academic hip and knee surgeon at Louisiana State University in New Orleans, where our department mascot is an alligator eating a king cake. I'm Jesse Wolfstadt, an academic orthopedic surgeon at Mount Sinai Hospital and the University of Toronto, hailing from Canada, where we like to celebrate the end of every clinic with a beaver tail and a hot cup of Tim Hortons coffee. And I'm Jenna Bernstein, an orthopedic surgeon with Connecticut Orthopedics, where all we have gotten out of living in the insurance capital of America is more prior auths. So I'm happy to introduce our guest, Dr. Neil Sheth. Dr. Sheth is an associate professor of orthopedic surgery at the University of Pennsylvania, where he also serves as the chief of orthopedic surgery at Pennsylvania Hospital, which is the nation's first hospital. He is also the director of global orthopedics with whom he is working to build an orthopedic center of excellence in Tanzania in partnership with GE Health, UPenn and Kilimanjaro Christian Medical Center, which is going to be the focus of our podcast today. So thanks so much for being with us. And we are just gonna start by having you tell us about how you began your work in Tanzania. Jenna, Anna, and Jesse, thank you so much for having me. And I'm excited to actually talk about, uh, I think our work that we've been doing in the developing world and looking at Tanzania specifically in East Africa. So I was really fortunate when I was a resident. So Jenna and I trained in the same program and I was a resident graduate in 2009 at Penn. And in 2007, I had the fortunate episode of being able to go to Nigeria, West Africa with one of our former foot and ankle surgeons who was Nigerian and took me to Nigeria and it was life-changing. Over a span of 10 days, we were operating every other day, seeing patients every other day. And in clinic, we'd see sometimes close to 250 or 300 patients in a day that needed surgery. We could only take care of a small portion of those patients. And by the end of that trip, I knew that this was a life-changing event that has actually kind of helped me gear my focus, I think, as an orthopedic surgeon going forward. And I was really excited to be involved in global health and global surgery from that point forward. Fortunately, in 2008, when I was a chief resident, Ennio Kerke, who was my mentor and the foot and ankle surgeon that I went to Nigeria with, fortunately passed away in Nigeria, had a heart attack in Nigeria, and unfortunately, they ran out of the medication to resuscitate him. And as a result, I was asked to give part of the eulogy at his memorial service. And I realized that day that I wanted to continue his life's work, which was changing systems in some of these low and middle income countries. Now, in 2012, I was invited to Tanzania for the first time on Operation Walk. That was the first trip that Operation Walk did to Africa and fell in love with the country, fell in love with the people. And since that time forward, I've really been focusing on that country with our team to try to build some type of a sustainable solution to help those people help their own patients. And so since then, we've been trying to build an orthopedic hospital in Tanzania to collaborate with our university, as well as 25 other universities around the world to basically cover the entire new hospital year round to help those patients. So it's a really unique approach to partner with GE Health and something that I think other groups haven't really thought about combining a company that's a a public company with academic surgeons. And can you talk about more how you got involved with that and what their role is in establishing the hospital? Yeah. So one of the things that I think is unique for me, for my background, is I was an investment banker before I went to med school. So 
everything I think about is kind of like a business. And I think when you think about nonprofits, it's based off of you make money from any endeavor and it's how you use those profits determines whether you're a nonprofit or for-profit. So we're looking at running this endeavor as an actual business, but the money that you make from this, you can fold this back as is operational equity to go take care of more patients that don't have access to care. I was really fortunate in 2016. So this was probably, Jenna, you probably graduated a year after this, year or two after this. So when you were probably a PGY3 or PGY4, I was offered this opportunity to go over to England to the African Healthcare Summit which was the second meeting that they had for the African healthcare system. And I actually had a chance to meet the CEO of GE Healthcare Africa just by chance. And that's only because my flight was delayed and I couldn't walk into the meeting at the time that I was supposed to walk into the meeting. And I was out of the GE booth and started chatting with this guy. And it turns out to be, he was the CEO of GE Healthcare Africa. And so since then, over the last five years, we've become really close friends and His family and my family have become friends. We've shared holidays together and gone over to England. They've come over here and they have really been, I think, GE Healthcare. And actually, as of yesterday, GE Healthcare just split off from GE as its own company and now is publicly traded, which is a big deal. But GE Healthcare is a huge proponent and a big supporter of our work based off of one thing only. And it's because we've been asking questions in the host country to collect data to figure out exactly what their need is. And it's not us coming in as Americans saying, this is what I think you need. Why don't you tell us what you need? Why don't we try to figure out what the situation is today? Figure out what the lack of access is for your patients and what we can do to help increase access for your patients to care. And what are the barriers? But please define those for us. And we will come up with a system that will actually help you. So GE has been a huge partner for us, and it's been amazing because they have a lot of context and connections and understanding, I think, of the developing world. We've learned a lot from them, but I think they're really interested in the way that we have approached this scenario on looking at specifically trying to define the current state of affairs and what we need to do to change it. Yeah, I think talking about the difference between an NGO and a for-profit, it seems like a lot of service-based companies now are switching towards being for profit because it tends to be a more functional way to operate. So you were talking about figuring out what they need in Tanzania as a way to decide how to build the program. Can you talk about, first of all, how you gather that information, who you're asking, and then what you've really found the needs are? So that's actually a really good question. So who we're partnering with over there is one of their universities. So Kilimanjaro Christian Medical Center is the university in Tanzania, which is the largest hospital and university setting in the entire country. So it's the largest medical school, nursing school, physical therapy, and occupational therapy school, and they've got 12 other allied health professional schools in that university. It's a 700-bed hospital, and in the northeast region of Tanzania, takes care of a catchment area of about 13.5 million people. You can imagine Tanzania has a population of about 60 million people and they only have 45 orthopedic surgeons. So very different than Philadelphia, where we have 137 orthopedic surgeons in the span of the 30 blocks where Jenna, you and I have trained and where I still currently work. So when we partnered with this one university, I sat down, this is in 2014, I sat down with that team. And I remember being at a cafe in East Africa asking them, 
And I said, I have an idea of what I think you guys need. Why don't you guys tell me the three biggest barriers to access for care for your patients and your three biggest barriers to delivering that care? And they told me it was three things. They said, number one, we don't have enough capacity. And for them, capacity meant we don't have enough operating theaters. They have one operating theater for orthopedics where they can do two cases a day, maybe three cases a day. But each day they probably have the need to do maybe 10 to 15 cases a day. So you can imagine by Wednesday or Thursday of the week, they've got almost 50, 60, 80 patients on the floor that need surgery that have not gotten taken care of. The second part of capacity is that we don't have enough workforce. We have three orthopedic surgeons here. We have a cohort of orthopedic residents that can help us, but that's not enough for the burden that we're seeing. The second piece was that we don't have a steady flow of implants. We don't have implants that are available. We are working with Luzerkel and HBO and different organizations to get donations every month. But if we don't have donations this month, we tell patients we're really sorry that we can't take care of you. The third piece was patients don't have the regular ability to pay for implants. If they cannot pay, then they do not get care. And so those were the three defining things. And that's how we kind of came up with a system to say, can we figure out a way to actually address those three biggest things and barriers that you feel from your side in your environment so that we can actually take care of more patients together? Really quick. Dr. Chef, do you mind just giving us a little bit more information about what the hospital looks like now? Is it set up? Is it running? And leading up to that, what sort of missions had you been going on? What did the trips look like before you sort of set up this hospital? Yeah. So Jesse, those are really, really good questions because I think this is where the fundamental difference is. And I think the approach. So I went in 2012 to Tanzania for the first time, and it was an amazing trip. At Operation Walk, we did 50 joint replacements over a span of three or four days. We had six orthopedic surgeons. We had 52 other people who were there for staff to help us do these cases. And everyone was high-fiving at the end of this one week. And I didn't feel so great about it. And I wasn't sure exactly why. I couldn't really kind of articulate why. And Amin Makani, one of our chief residents, came over eight months later in February of 2013 and went over with me back to Tanzania. And I met the orthopedic surgeon that we worked with on the ground there. And we had a very nice conversation in his office. And he told me two things that changed my entire perspective. He said to me, he said, you know, he's like, we're not very happy when you guys come to our country. And I said, what do you mean, sir? I said, I was like, we're here to help out. He goes, oh, yeah. He goes, I don't mean to be disrespectful. You guys are very good. You can take care of a lot of patients in a very short period of time. But you've left me with problems that I cannot fix. Of the 50 surgeries that you did, four knee replacements got infected and one hip was chronically dislocating. I don't know how to do a revision hip replacement. I don't know how to take care of a revision total knee replacement for infection. So that's a problem. But what he said to me after that was even more impactful. And he said, after you guys left for three months, I had no business and I had no work. Patients came to this hospital for free care from U.S. surgeons. No one's coming here to pay an African surgeon now. (laughs) They realized three months later that you're not coming back anytime soon. That statement right there flipped my entire approach to global surgery. 
So since 2012, I have not done any surgeries in Africa. Every time I've gone over, which is prior to the pandemic, I was going over two to three times a year. It's more for meetings and setting up systems before we can actually take care of patients properly. And the key thing is that can we take care of patients so that you have a team coming over as you leave to take care of patients and take care of patients if they have complications. If I do a surgery today and I'm leaving the country tomorrow, I have seven partners that can take care of those patients. And I have identified someone to help me out in my absence. I'm not happy about it that I'm not there to take care of it, but I know that they're going to be taken care of properly. I can't go into another country, whether it's Tanzania, Guatemala, Cambodia, wherever it is. That's like making myself feel better for doing a good deed with the right intention. But I've left you with more problems than when I came in. That's not so good. So Jesse, your question is actually very well taken that, you know, like I, I we don't do cases right now till I can build this hospital. So Right now, the hospital that they have is a huge center with one orthopedic OR. However, their infection rate is 37% on every case that they do there right now. Wow. So I don't think they are set to do high volume trauma surgery and pediatrics and taking care of infection or joint replacement. I need to build them a new center that is sterile that has the right system around it to be able to do their work. I'm going to create a better system, better hospital for them to work in. Not for me, but we will help you along the way with 26 teams that will be there. Each team has donated two weeks a year so that as Penn leaves for after the first two weeks of January, the Mayo Clinic's coming in or HSS is coming in or Stanford or University of Leeds or the University of Mexico City. We have 26 teams that are willing to devote that time, but you're signing out a service to the next team so that if there's a complication in that patient, it's okay. We have someone to be able to take care of that complication, teach the people who live there all the time so we don't put them in a situation where they can't take care of that patient and then create more of a burden for their healthcare system. So is the long-term goal then to train residents there so that people don't have to do trips anymore? Like Correct. What's the long-term vision? Long-term vision is a seven-year plan. I want to be there for seven years with all of our teams, train the next generation of orthopedic surgeons, orthopedic nurses, their physical therapists, occupational therapists. Every person on our team that comes over will be teaching at the requisite level on their side, right? Our scrub nurses, our scrub techs, our anesthesiologists. So each team that comes over will come over with 16 to 20 people from any university with all of those requisite people that will help teach that side of their team so that you teach them a different mindset. Jenna, you know this, like being in Philly and having been a chief resident at our VA system. If we raised $15 million next year to build a brand new building at the VA, they would have a nice, shiny, brand new building, but the system inside that building would be no different. If I have the same administration running that system, in a year from now, the system would run the same. The building still might look nicer than the other buildings, but it's not as effective. If I build a brand new building in Africa, but I don't teach them a different mindset, if I don't give them the tools to create a system around them that's actually effective for them, 
I can't expect the outcome to be any different. So it's not just about giving them resources, it's about giving them a mindset. It's about saying, and I think to be honest, I think those surgeons are better surgeons than we are because they can do more with less. My thought is, if I can give you what you need, can you do better to take care of your patients? Let me worry about what you need. Let me worry about how to get the funding to get you what you need so you can take care of your patients. And all of us on this call know that we are really fortunate, right? I've got 800 boxes on the shelf. I can fine tune your hip by a millimeter. And if I don't love that liner, I'm going to take it out and ask for the next liner and put that in because I think it's the right thing to do for you. Don't have that luxury in those countries, but I don't think those patients deserve any less care just because they don't have that system. So one of the things that my mentor, Ennio Karaki, taught me was that you've got to always be working towards changing systems to help those people. It's not about you. It's not about patting yourself on the back. Change the system, help those people take care of their own patients and figure out what parts of the system that need to be continually fine-tuned so you can be more effective. You know, I think that is what makes your project really different than other service trips that are going on currently, kind of like you articulated. So the goal is seven years of trips, then transition to it being a Tanzania-based team, and then you go somewhere else or something like that. Yeah, I mean, we can franchise. So we've built Global Orthopedics as like our NGO, and mm -hmm. this is really more for us to get more access like in those countries. So we're in the process right now of getting Global Orthopedics to be a nonprofit in the United States which will allow us to get 501c3 sort of status in the United States, which will allow us to become an NGO in Tanzania. But that only gives me one benefit, which means then I'm tax exempt in Tanzania, which means if we do any charity work in Tanzania, any money that we make, we get to put into that bank account to help take care of the patients that are really poor, that have no money, or I have really wealthy patients here that I just did a total hip on, they say, wow, Dr. Chef, you're doing this. We want to help support you. You can donate money through Global Orthopedics into that bank account. And you just took care of X number of patients that are really poor, that have no access, right? That has a femur fracture that may cost 125 US dollars to get a nail and get their surgery done. You can take care of that patient and I can make sure that can happen. So that's, that's kind of what we're working on now. But the goal is in seven years from now, I want to peel out and be able to franchise our model to any country in the world. Go to Cambodia, go to Nicaragua, go to like some other part of the world, because there's a lot of people on this planet that need help. They don't live in downtown Philadelphia where they've got access to everything. Unfortunately, doing all these things does cost money, right? And to make it self-sustaining, it has to bring in money because eventually... There's only so much we can ask implant companies to donate and it's cost money to keep an OR sterile. What's the plan to keep bringing in money and to allow this to become self-sustaining when we're serving so many people that like we talked about don't have money to afford this care? So great question. And Anna, this kind of comes back to what you were asking about before. So the first part of this, what we've come up with is we're looking to build a hospital to give them space to work. More than one operating theater and right? Maybe four operating theaters or eight operating theaters, whatever it is in the first phase, but 
a place to be able to sterilely work and take care of patients. That was the first part of capacity. Second part is workforce. Well, I've got 26 schools that have already signed an agreement to say we'll be one of your universities to help out. Okay, I've got you workforce. We've taken care of part one. Number two is implants. So it's ironic that one of the implant companies that happens to be from my parents' hometown in India makes implants that are the same implants that we use, whether it's in Connecticut or in Canada or in Philadelphia, and they are one-ninth the cost. So we've got the CEO of this company happens to be from my parents' hometown, and he is fully on board to have us as their only sort of distribution center for implants in Tanzania. And they have a distribution like center down in Dar es Salaam where those implants are coming in from India. So we figured out the implant piece. We've been working on another company from Australia that can offer us implants. They can get us a primary total knee replacement for 400 bucks with an all polyethylene tibia. And they can get us a primary total hip replacement, which is cementless for $800. So it actually goes to your next question, Jenna, which is how do you get this sustainable for cost? So we have three different packages, packages A, B, and C. A is the amenities package, B is the basic package, C is concessions. A is the wealthy patient that normally would fly to the UK, Dubai, India, US for their hip replacement. But that might cost them $50,000 to do that. Family's going with them. They're paying for their implant. They're paying for their surgery. They're paying for staying in the hospital for two weeks. Well, now you've got Rush University coming in for two weeks in your own country, which is literally an hour away from where you live. Well, why do I need to go to the UK? I can go there to get my hip replacement. And this whole thing may cost you $7,000. But the seven grand will include your implant, your surgical fee, your private room, private nurse, a space in your room for your uh, family to stay with you. You'll get therapy twice a day, but part of your cost will be offsetting the cost for package C that can't pay for that implant. Package B is the basic package, which is the package that the government tells us. We can charge you X for your hip replacement. Same diagnosis, same implant, same surgery that's required but now you have a roommate you've got a nurse that takes care of two rooms so four patients you get therapy twice a day but you're doing it with your roommates like group therapy and we've got a couch in your room for your family to stay in but your cost is lower and then package c is the is the person that comes from the village got hit by a car femoral neck fracture still needs a total hip replacement surgery doesn't change we're going to have you pay a little bit of money. So there's some value as to what you get. Not, it's not completely free, but the surgery's for free. You're in a room with three other patients. You get group therapy with three other patients. Your family sleeps on the floor, which is culturally acceptable in Tanzania. They bring in your own food. But what we've done is democratized healthcare. The surgeon and their team who's there does not care if you're package A, B, or C. You get the same care but package A will help us cross-subsidize package C. The nice thing is that we're all volunteers. We don't need to get paid. Right? Sounds like the perfect two-tiered system. Yeah. 
Right. I mean, the thing that I'm, I've been really fortunate that like throughout all of this work, we've been able to engage a lot of the parts of like the University of Pennsylvania, like the Wharton School of Business or the Leonard Davis School of Economics. And they've helped us come up with parts of this system to say we can make this financially sustainable because the most expensive part of your system is the talent that you're bringing over. But teams can raise money for your $1,100 ticket and your $150 that you're going to pay to stay there for 10 days to like do your work. That's not so hard to raise money for. But I can't raise money for implants all the time. And I've got to get them out of the mind frame of accepting donations all the time. Because when they're so donation based, this month, we don't have donations. I can't take care of you. I'm so sorry. I want to, but I can't. So we're trying to change a little bit of the mindset. Let me worry about what you need. I know what you need. But the nice thing is that if we have 26 schools and say you're doing trauma for six months, that's 13 fellowships coming to your hospital. You don't have to go to the Netherlands. You don't have to go to Egypt to go learn how to do something. Stay in your own system. We'll help you figure out how to work in your own system to take care of these patients. And God forbid someone has a complication. We have people who are coming as the next team to help you learn how to take care of that complication. So it sounds like the goal is to make this also a destination center in East Africa for orthopedic care for patients who could afford to go elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know what the culture is like in Tanzania, but do you think that the patients that can afford to go to the UK or other countries to go get their orthopedic care are going to be open to going to the same hospital as people from villages and staying in the same facilities? Like, I just don't know culturally if that's, I don't know enough to know if that's something that will be acceptable. That's a great question. But the thing is that we have different parts of the hospital, right? So you're getting a private room when you're coming to the same hospital for care for your hip replacement, your tibial nail, whatever it is. You may have the poor person who's coming from the village, right? Tanzania's got a huge Maasai tribe population, right? These are like sheep herders and like cattle herders that are walking kilometers and kilometers a day and completely different part of the population. But now they're in a room with three other patients. Like it's a different part of the hospital. We've just democratized the type of care that they're getting, right? So if you look at the people that, some of the people that trained you, if I have Samir or Derek Donigan coming with me from the trauma side, you think they care if you're package A or C? Certainly you not. broke your tibia, they're going to fix it the right way through a small incision, not soft tissue friendly and be able to fix this so we can get you up moving tomorrow, right? The thing is that I think that the wealthy patients will look at this and say, I've got access to level of care and level of expertise in my own home country where I don't have to go to the UK. And we've done a little bit of sort of focus group research in that region to see what people's perception is of, of those people who are wealthy, who have the opportunity to go elsewhere. And they're like, I would much rather stay here. 77% said they'd rather stay in Tanzania. So we're just bringing the talent over there. Don't go anywhere. Stay there. But while we're doing this, we're going to be teaching and collaborating with your on-ground teams. And the reality is, Jenna, like, as you know this, like, I've learned more from those surgeons than I've even been able to teach them. Because this is culturally different than what we see here. 
right? I take care of patients and I love my job, but I take care of patients who struggle after their 16th hole of golf because they got to take a golf cart. Their friends are making fun of them. And they're like, oh, doc, I need a total hip replacement. Yeah, I'm happy to do it. And that person's probably sending me a bottle of wine every year at Christmas. But we're seeing people over there that can't even walk, right? They have to walk a several kilometers every day to get two kilograms of rice to feed their family. Completely different patient population. Same diagnosis x-ray wise. Same surgery that they need. Yeah, there's a lot of people over there that need help. And that's a small microcosm of the entire developing world. There's so many countries like this. And this is a small part of Tanzania, which is a huge country. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think that the wealthy patients are going to worry about it as long as I can create a part of the hospital, which is amenable to what they want, which is private care. I look at this truly kind of like the flight that's leaving tonight to New York, to Tokyo and Japan. You got three classes. You got first class, business class, and coach class. If you can pay for first, you're not going coach. And if you got a little bit of money in between, you're going to probably go business for that 14-hour flight. The good thing is that every single passenger or every patient on that airplane is going to get to their destination. What you choose in between is nothing more than amenities. A live flat seat and three meals and French wine and whatever you want. But at the end of the day, if you get there safely, it's the same thing. That's kind of what we're doing, right? I'm giving you first business and coach. You choose. But our teams are like the captain of the ship and I'm going to get you all there safely. What you get along the way is up to you. We don't really care about that. Yeah. I'm working with also a pretty underserved population with maybe not quite as drastic as what you're talking about the population in Tanzania, but some of the similar qualities in terms of access, lack of access to care, lack of ability to walk, not accessing transportation, not able to access medication and primary care. So I've just been very intrigued and inspired by what you're saying about which of these tactics can we bring home? Because there are many parts of the U.S. with similar populations. That's a really good question because we worry about that. A lot, I think, you know, you look at these big academic centers, especially where I work now in Philly, you have a huge population in an urban center that does not have access to care. And to be honest, if you look at every big academic center or even every big private practice, they're under the gun of having perfect metrics, discharge to home and low length of stay and no reoperations, no readmissions. And some of these patients are not fit to be in that category. But I don't think that means they don't deserve access to care, right? Again, taking care of that patient who needs a hip replacement after their 16th hole of golf, like I don't, I can just tell them like, stop playing golf, go do something else. But I think the patient who lives at home, who's a recent widow, who may be overweight, diabetic, right? Low ability to be able to tolerate any activity because they've got a really bad arthritic hip and is at high risk of falling. I would say that's not that elective of a procedure, right? So how do you change that? And I think that, and Jenna, you know this, like Charles Nelson, like one of your mentors, one of my biggest mentors, like, and the reason I went into joint replacement, like we have this conversation all the time because we try to do the best that we can to take care of those patients back home. 
right? Because I think those patients are losing access to care to some private practices around us and practices around us that say, we don't accept your insurance or wow, your metrics that you're going to provide for me are not perfect. So maybe I don't want to take care of you and we're taking a bigger hit. I don't know how you take care of those patients differently with regards to the metrics that all of us are under the pressure of trying to meet, if that makes sense. Yeah. And that's a really tough thing because I, and then that's the reason that, you know, I, that's the reason I left wall street to go to like, take care of patients, not because of how much money I make, not because it makes some metric on some U S news and world report, like rating, but cause it's the right thing to do. It may not be perfect every time, you have a relationship with a patient say, I'm going to do the best that I can with my team to take care of you. The nice thing is that in these other countries, those people are so thankful and say, thank you so much for trying to help me. I may not do well. I may lose my life. I may lose my leg. I may get infected, but thank you for trying to help me. And you realize it's the purest form of healthcare. This is what I decided to do for, not because you're getting paid for it, because you have the privilege to do so. Right. So I think it's a little bit harder at home because I think those patients in general do have access to it through the emergency room or through some other system. It's just not as clear. And I think we're also being disincentivized from a lot of government institutions and healthcare systems to say, don't take care of that patient because I'd rather you take care of that patient that's struggling after their 16th hole of golf because you have a much higher chance of getting a perfect result on that patient, which is going to make us look good. And it seems like those patients that need the most resources are not sort of equitably distributed, as you mentioned, and they end up using a lot of resources and taxing the places that that are able and want to take care of them. And it's just a cycle of burnout. And it's probably a whole other podcast, but just lots, lots of thoughts when you're talking. I really, really appreciate you bringing up these topics. Yeah, no, I think this is one of the things that really frustrates me. And I think over the last two years, I think probably the biggest struggle for me was not traveling anymore. I recognize every three to four months when I have not been out of the country to see some of these patients, even if I'm not doing surgery, but just to be around those people and recognize that, wow, this is just another human being, same genetics essentially, but they were born in this country. And I think genetics and geography really dictate a lot of where your life kind of leads, right? So if I was born to a different set of parents here, I'd be in one state. If I was born to a different set of parents in like, the middle of the developing world, I'd be in trouble. And so I've been really fortunate to have what I have, but I think all of us have been really fortunate to have learned what we've learned and, and the skills that we've been able to attain to treat patients. Well, then go help someone that needs help again because they need help. And it's a privilege to do so, not because you get paid for it. And I think our system, I think in the United States, and I don't know, Jesse, it might be different in Canada, but I don't think it's that different. It might beat the privilege out of you to say, but I have other metrics that I have to meet in order to do my job. Because if I don't do it, they'll just hire someone else to do it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a little bit difficult. So for our young arthroplasty group members who are interested in getting involved with global health, with service trips in a meaningful way that maybe is different than what's available what advice do you have for them to get involved? Is there any way people can reach out to you? Yeah, I mean, you can definitely, anyone can reach out to me, like, and hopefully they have my contact information through the, the YAG group. But I think that it's interesting that, so Jenna, you know, we're coming up on interviews in like three weeks or two weeks. 
And every year, probably since you were a resident, like Dr. Levin always asks me to like push aside like 60 of our fellow or our resident applicants that want to talk about global surgery and global health. I think the easiest way to get involved is to link up with someone that you're training with or someone you have a relationship with that has a dedicated relationship with an institution that is going more than once a year or has some system in place to go a few times a year so that these institutions abroad don't have a huge lag period where they don't have coverage or care. I think most of these places, and again, that conversation that I had in 2013 to Dr. Kabira, who was in Tanzania with us, was really eye-opening for me because he told me something that he would never have told the senior person of Operation Walk. And he wasn't trying to be disrespectful. He was just saying, hey, by the way, we don't love it when you guys come here. And it's because of this. And so you need someone that has a really close relationship that's more frequent than, hey, we're going once every two years. Let's go help you out. Let's create a system. And also, I think, Jenna, I think one of the key things for someone who's a young orthoplasty student that wants to get involved with this, make sure that people are asking that one question of what are the people over where we're going to help? What do they really need? Not what do we think we need to give them or what we think they need, but what do they tell us that they need based on what they're seeing on the ground over there? I think if you start with that, that's probably a more sustainable solution and will be better, I think, for our younger surgeons who want to get involved with this kind of stuff. So to give you an idea, a dynamic hip screw to hit, take care of a hip fracture is the implant out of stainless steel is made in India for one US dollar. And I've been to the facility and it's all made out of robotic like technology and it's laser etched and wow, it looks the same as the Synthes DHS or it looks the same as the Smith and Nephew compression hip screw. By the time that it leaves that city to Mumbai, across the Indian Ocean, to Tanzania, to Dar es Salaam, through customs and whoever we have to grease to get that implant into the country in sterile fashion up to our hospital in, in Tanzania, it now costs $67. The last DHS we used on Tuesday night with Dr. Donegan or Dr. Mehta at Presbyterian Hospital costs $970 for that implant. All right, Dr. Sheth, now we're gonna start out with a few rapid fire questions so we can all learn about how you do things uh, for your patients over here. So what approach are you using for your total hip replacements? So I'm now at about 75% from the anterior approach. I'll still do 25% posterior approach and that's just because I still have a fairly large population of sickle cell patients or patients that are overweight or obese and have had multiple surgeries on their hip before and need a conversion total hip replacement. Those I'll do from a posterior approach. So speaking of obesity, do you have any kind of BMI cutoff for your elective total hips and knees? I don't. I think BMI is a number, but I look at the patient to see if we can optimize them and make sure that they are nutritionally optimized and make sure that other comorbidities are optimized as well as we can be. And there are some patients that are never going to lose weight to get down to a certain number. 
Um, so I kind of look at the entire patient to figure out what is the best thing for them. And I do have one patient specifically that was 670 pounds when she met me for bilateral total knee replacements. And I had a very long discussion with her in the office and I'm not sure exactly what I said, but something changed in her mind and she never got gastric bypass surgery, but she went to the gastric bypass clinic to go through their weight loss program. She lost 460 pounds. Wow. And she has since then had multiple plastic surgeries. She has now lost that weight and kept it off for the last five years. And she comes in every three to six or eight months for bilateral knee injections and has not gotten knee replacements. And so she's like my biggest, like actually my biggest poster child of like what I think we should do. And she has talked to a lot of my obese patients that you can kind of do this. Right. So it's not a BMI cutoff, but let's get you in the best shape possible. So you don't have a complication. We can technically do your surgery, but that's not the point. And I tell patients often that I can tell you how to fix that x-ray every day of the week. If I can't get you through what I need to do to fix that x-ray safely, then I haven't done anything good for you. And right now in the office, I need to be a better doctor than to be a better surgeon because I'm trying to give you advice on when we should operate on you. And I think most patients take that and say, it sounds like you're trying to do the right thing for me. So I don't have a BMI cutoff. Are you using any robotics navigation technology in hip or knee replacements? Come on, Jenna. Of course I'm not. We're the listeners. I'm actually the only person at Penn that's not using any robotics. Uh, but I'm actually more concerned that we have some residents who are learning robotics who don't know fundamentals of total knee and hip replacement. And more importantly for the fellows, they don't know where they're going to get a job. If you get so hooked onto using a robot and then you go take a job and say, I'm so sorry, we don't have a contract with X and you have to do this manually and you can't do this. That's a problem. So, yeah, so I'm not opposed to robotics. I think if you understand the fundamentals, I think robotics can help you to even be a little bit better. But I want people to learn how to do this manually so they can do this on their own, depending on where they operate. And definitely in the developing world, there's no robotics. I can say I was very thankful to have learned knee and hip replacement with no technology and now use it. What kind of bearing services do you use for your knee replacement, meaning CR, PS, MC, MS, whatever we're calling it now? I'm like 99 (laughs) MC uh, with a CR. And I think when you trained with us, like I was all CR, the only difference was, and I was very hesitant to shift to like anything else because I was afraid that if I shifted to MC, I would have to balance my knee differently. And I realized that I didn't have to. So I still do a standard CR approach and keep the ligament. And I put an MC bearing in the only thing that I've recognized, and this has been about the last three years, only thing I recognize is that patients come in at two weeks with better reciprocal stair climbing after an MC bearing versus a CR bearing. Hmm. Interesting. And I'll ask this question leading, but approach for total knee replacement. Yeah. So I still do a mini mid vastus for all of my total knees. I think it's by the most soft tissue sparing way of doing a total knee replacement. I think, and again, Total knee replacements, I think, are a soft tissue operation. So the nicer you can be to soft tissues, because patients that come in with total knee replacements that are not infected, 
implants are not loose and the knee is not completely unstable, what do people complain about? That 15 to 20% is soft tissue pain. It still hurts here. It still hurts there. I feel like a band of tissue here and there. It doesn't feel right. So I figure that the best way to take care of that is to at least preemptively be as nice as you can to be the soft to the soft tissues as you do your new replacement. So patients hopefully don't have that residual discomfort. Okay. Speaking of soft tissues, what is your standard wound closure and is it different for hips and knees? Same for hips and knees. So we do number one vicros for the deep layer or uh, number two quill, two O vicros for the dermis. And then for the skin and the subcutaneous tissues, we still do a running biosyn or monocryl and then dermabond for the skin. So even for knees, like I've done that since I've been in practice for 13 years. So that hasn't changed. And are you do, doing dermabond in, in, in some steroid strips? No steroid strips. Because I've seen people with dermabond and you put the steroid strips on and if you put them on a little bit too early, they get this massive inflammatory response from the Dermabond and Stereoship. So Dermabond, let it dry for 90 seconds. And we put on a silver impregnated dressing that is waterproof so they can keep on for like 10 to 14 days. And then once they take that dressing off, do you just let them fly? Yep. Let it fly and keep it open. Awesome. And then last question for the lightning round goes back a little bit to some of the perioperative optimization. What's your approach to patients who are active smokers? Yeah, so we get them to stop, but I look at smoking as two different things. It's different when you're smoking six cigarettes a week versus two packs a day. I don't think they're the same people. Six cigarettes a week is like breathing industrial air. Two packs a day, that's a different person, right? It's a different patient. So I kind of look at them and if I have a real active smoker, we're not going to operate on them. You need to cut down on your smoking, really stop and get them to stop at least six weeks before surgery. I have not been getting labs like the day of to look at their nicotine levels. If you're a six cigarette a week smoker, I'm not too worried about it. But I will really ask if someone is an active smoker and it's kind of listed in their past medical history, we will actually really spend some time to really delve into that to get a sense of where they kind of actually fall out. But you still won't test like serum codeine or urine? Okay. Yeah, none of us do. We kind of made that as like a, a group decision not to test. But again, we're pretty anti like active smokers. But again, I think there's a spectrum of active smoking. Any take home messages you want the listeners to hear? Yeah, a summary statement for all the stuff that we talked about with the global health and global surgery piece. I will tell you that the global surgery piece is by far the best part of what I get to work on in my career. It never feels like work. And I think that you know, my job and my goal is always to be Ennio Karaki, who was my mentor. My job and goal is always to be able to inspire the uninspired to have this as a part of their career. And I think this is the purest form of healthcare. And again, I think we are really privileged to learn and train for as long as we do to, to learn what we're going to do as a career. And I think it is our responsibility to go help some people that need help because we have the privilege to do so. Thank you so much to Dr. Seth for joining us. You can find information for how to join the Young Arthroplasty Group at aahks.org and follow us on Twitter. Thank you for joining us for the Young Arthroplasty Group Augment Podcast channel. Visit acus.org to learn more about how members of American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, investigate, and perform humanitarian outreach in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery. 